Welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. This week, my guest is Andy Greenberg. He is a senior writer at Wired Magazine and the author of Sandworm, A New Era of Cyber War and the Hunt for the Kremlin's Most Dangerous Hackers. And I've invited Andy on because um, his book is fantastic and it really is the definitive take on what as he found in the course of his investigation, was a GRU cyber operation that targeted multiple countries and actually, I think, shut down or at least badly hindered international commerce and shipping a few years back. And yet nobody had really heard of them or knew that they had existed until there was an unsealed grand jury indictment by the Department of Defense a few months ago. Uh, We had on the program John Holquist, who was a cybersecurity expert, largely responsible for mapping the GRU's cyber shenanigans and he's also a main character in Andy's book. And anyway, Andy, it's great to have you on. And I think, uh, as I mentioned off air, that the news peg or the relevance for having you on is the discussion that's taken place, uh, particularly this week, about the solar winds breach. And I think a lot of the mischaracterization or misreporting around what this really constituted. And when it was first reported, it was described as a cyber attack. I've interviewed enough cybersecurity gurus and experts and journalists covering this who always bang on about how awful it is when we conflate cyber espionage with cyber attack or cyber warfare. And the two are very different concepts and they matter because they, you know, in terms of a US government retaliation or response, there's an issue of proportionality to be brought to bear here. So first, can you describe, as you see it, what was the solar winds breach? And this was perpetrated by cyber operators from the SVR, which is the Russia's civilian foreign intelligence service, as distinct from the GRU, its military intelligence service. And then we can sort of talk about the distinctions and perhaps similarities between the malware that was used for this breach and the malware used, well, what you've and others have dubbed sandworm, which has been much more catastrophic in terms of physically shutting down computer systems around the world. Yeah, well, pleasure to be here. Thank you for that introduction. Since this whole thing that we call the SolarWinds hack began, and you know, the cybersecurity industry has always tried to caution everyone not to call the SolarWinds hack because the attackers, the hackers, I should say, it's an important distinction we're going to talk about. The hackers used a lot of different vectors to break into their targets, which included nine federal agencies from the State Department to the Department of Justice to NASA. But since this story first broke, it started in December, just before Christmas. I was actually on vacation. And I, and I felt like every step of the way, I've been kind of watching the press, especially the sort of mainstream non-cybersecurity press run wild with this and you know, trying to tell people to rein in their ideas about what this hacking campaign was all about. And, you know, it began, in fact, with FireEye revealing that they had been breached by these hackers and that the hackers had tried to steal their, essentially their penetration testing tools. Right. And was reported almost like another kind of shadow brokers incident. If you remember the shadow brokers were this mysterious hacker group that stole a bunch of NSA zero days, um, NSA zero day hacking techniques. Now those are truly like the crown jewel, secret, highly powerful intrusion tools that the NSA possesses and uses to break into places all around the world. This was just like a kind of, you know, sort of commodity set of tools that probably every penetration testing company has. But the reaction to this story immediately was so overblown. People were talking about this as kind of shadow brokers 2.0, like somebody gaining access to the nuclear launch codes was one email that I got in my inbox. You know, so immediately I was sort of like trying to tamp down this story. And then it became clear, in fact, that FireEye was just one of many, many victims of these hackers. 
In fact, FireEye just brought them to light because they did a good job of incident response, found the hackers in their system. And that was sort of like the unraveling of this vast secret, uh, what looks to me like a big espionage campaign. Right. It is a, an incredibly you know, impressive and in some ways unprecedented hacking campaign. The intruders here actually first broke into this IT monitoring software firm, SolarWinds, and corrupted their product, their software, so that this application that they sell as a product, Orion, was kind of backdoored and it was pushed out to all of their customers, you know, with the hacker's code built into it so that they had access now to as many as 18,000 of SolarWinds customers all around the world. I mean, that's an incredible coup of sort of like intelligence agency access. But then by all appearances, it seems like these hackers, we still don't know exactly who they are, but it really seems like they're Russian. The U.S. government keeps saying it's Russia. From the beginning, there were reports that it was SVR, the Russian Foreign Intelligence Agency. It seems like they were doing espionage. And in fact, they seem to have used this solar winds supply chain attack, as we call it. You know, they, they corrupted the software supply chain just to cast a really, really wide net. And then they had zeroed in on just a few targets of, you know, th these intrusions and then had actually for 99% or something of all of these hacking victims, they'd actually even used a kill switch in their code to remove their access when they realized that this was not somebody that they were interested in just to focus on a very small number of targets. And yet the way that this was reported was massive Russian cyber attack. You know, we hear immediately from people like president-elect at the time, Joe Biden saying, you know, this demands a response. I will not stand idly by while, while a cyber assault is carried out uh, against you know, our government. I, as someone who had, I guess a couple of years ago now published a book about the world's most dangerous Russian hackers. You know, everybody is pinging me on Twitter and saying, hey, Andy, looks like you were right. Russia's at it again. And, you know, this must be like the sequel to your book. Can't wait to see what you write about this, like incredible, reckless, brazen cyber war activity. And I didn't want to, it drove a lot of sales in my book. And I, it was, I was in this awkward position of watching this happen and saying, well, you know, maybe we don't really know yet. By all appearances, this is espionage. And to be clear, the hackers that I focused on in my book were an entirely different group, different agency, and a totally different class of hacking. I mean, I wrote this book, Sandworm, because this group known as Sandworm, part of Russia's GRU military intelligence agency, we're carrying out the kind of truly destructive acts of cyber war that we'd very rarely ever seen before in history. And one group was doing one after another after another. I mean, they caused blackouts in Ukraine, not once, but twice. They released this worm called Napetia in Ukraine that spread to the entire world, cost $10 billion in damages. I mean, the worst cyber attack in history. And then they even tried to sabotage the 2018 Winter Olympics, essentially destroying for a time the entire IT back end of those games, and then tried to pin it on North Korea. I mean, they, they were doing things that were just so beyond the pale that it was kind of amazing to me that this was all one group. I mean, that's why I focused on Sandworm. And now people were sort of, you know, flash forward again, December of, of last year, and suddenly everybody's comparing this whole Solar Winds campaign to another Sandworm attack. And to me, it was just very, very different. I was kind of in this awkward position of having been the author who was, you know, who was like trying to like sound this alarm about the most dangerous. Which nobody paid attention to at the time. I mean, it was reported on NotPetya, but it didn't engender the kind of like all of government, we're under attack media response that you saw from Solar Winds, right? 
Right. No, it's the the story of Sandworm is a small group of cybersecurity detectives, essentially, sort of watching what Sandworm, this Russian hacking group, is doing in Ukraine and trying to warn the world, like, what is happening in Ukraine? These acts of cyber war are unprecedented and we need to pay attention because not only do we need to try to punish Russia for this and say you, you, you can't do these kinds of reckless attacks on civilian critical infrastructure, this crosses a red line, but you know we need to set those norms because sooner or later those same acts of cyber war will spill out and hit us in the West. And you know for years they were ignored. Ukrainians tried to sound the alarm to say we are the canary in the coal mine. This won't stop in Ukraine. And they were right. I mean, NotPetya then spread from Ukraine. It became the worst cyber attack in history. It hit the West. It hit Maersk and Merck and FedEx, these massive multinational firms. And it took down medical record systems across the United States and hospitals, you know, in the US. I, you know, at this point was one of those sort of Cassandras saying, look at this, like this demands a response. This is exactly the kind of cyber war activity that the U.S. should be retaliating for, not necessarily in kind, but with sanctions, with indictments of the hackers responsible. We need to we need to draw these red lines. You need to work towards a kind of Geneva Convention for cyber war where right. these things are considered war crimes. After my book came out, it did seem like there was some progress towards that kind of recognition of these uh, attacks, those true cyber attacks as, and I say cyber attacks in those ca- cases because they were truly attacks. I don't know if SolarWinds was truly a cyber attack. I, I don't think it was. But the Sandworm attacks were. And in 2020, after my book came out, it did seem like there was a shift. And first, the State Department called out Sandworm for a cyber attacks against the country of Georgia and named Sandworm as this unit of the GRU that I had written, that I had you know, suspected that they were and put into my book. And then the NSA called out Sandworm, the EU sanctioned Sandworm. And then finally, in the fall, six members of the group were indicted by the U.S. And it seemed like there was kind of this sense like, well, yeah, I mean, better late than never. We should really do what we can to, to make clear to Russia that this is not OK. Right. But now we are kind of on the other extreme where Russia carried out, I think, what you can call like a massive espionage campaign, but it was just espionage. It's not a cyber attack. It's not cyber war. It was actually quite restrained. And it's also the kind of thing that we in the U.S., that you know, we five eyes countries do ourselves, massive, you know, dragnets of espionage. And I think it's. It's important to clarify, too, because what I find kind of amusing about this and, you know, in the American imagination, particularly in the last half decade, where you turn on cable news networks, you open the New York Times, and it's always Russian intelligence services are doing something. They're interfering in an election. They're creating fake news outlets and hiring even Westerner freelancers to contribute to them. And of course, they're invading foreign countries or waging warfare from Ukraine to Syria to Yemen. Um, and they're hacking. But there's there's always a conflation of the various services when we discuss these things, even if the reporting, it does go into the specifics of which agency. And watching the reaction to solar winds, where, as you say, the extent and scale of it is much smaller than that of Sandworm. Sandworm is a GRU construction. The GRU as an extension of the Russian Ministry of Defense and as an intelligence agency attached to the general staff, This is what they do. They prepare for and then ultimately prosecute warfare against the West. The SVR, which is one of the successor agencies of the KGB, they mostly do espionage. You know, they recruit agents who then pass them classified intelligence, but they're not shutting down the the reification factor, right? Physical systems, uh, you mentioned, you know, global shipping, Maersk, 
FedEx, people not being able to get packages on time, or hospitals not having records of their patients, some of whom are in critical condition. Things that are transferred from the digital sphere or realm into the physical tend to be done by GRU. And, and one of the early hacks that we all were obsessed about was the DNC hack, which subsequent reporting showed actually in that instance, both the SVR and the GRU, Cozy Bear and Fancy Bear were in those systems. But if you look at the, the methodology that either used, the SVR was just there to spy and to, to exfiltrate data. The GRU spied, exfiltrated the data, and then ultimately leaked it to WikiLeaks and created these sort of front group, Guccifer 2.0 and DC leaks to try and disseminate it, to have a real world impact. And what I find fascinating about cybersecurity is the differences in the Russian services that, that I've been tracking and researching in terms of how they conduct themselves in the human to human level has completely now transferred over into the digital space. I mean, the GRU is kind of a battering ram. The SVR, you know, their cardinal rule is don't get caught, right? And for a while, these guys didn't get caught. They were in these computer systems, meaning solar winds, for I think almost eight months to perhaps a year. And it was only through happenstance that you mentioned um, FireEye, John Holtquest, who's in your book, that because they were victimized by the supply chain attack, and they happen to be one of the world's top cybersecurity firms, they're the only people who, who managed to expose, you know, this massive breach, right? Exactly. I mean, the, the contrast you're drawing between the GRU and the SBR, if the, the SBR was in fact responsible for solar winds. And I think the reporting says that they are. There's actually some evidence that the FSB maybe was involved too. Kaspersky has found like some code similarities with actual FSB hacking. I think that the contrast still stands. Like if you look at the DNC hack, that, as you said, that's the best example of like the Cozy Bear SBR was spying Fancy Bear, which is a kind of um, sister agent, sister unit within GRU of Sandworm, was trying to you know disrupt the do norm breaking brazen kind of crazy things to you know blow up the the 2016 presidential election in the U.S. And I think if you look at the Solar Winds campaign and NotPetya, this worm that the GRU Sandworm released in Ukraine, it's a similar. It's actually quite a similar sort of parallel. Both were actually software supply chain attacks. Probably SVR, whoever these hackers were, they were able to compromise the SolarWinds IT management tool so that their code was spread out to 18,000 or so victims. And then they chose to use that to do extremely careful and constrained espionage, as far as we can tell. Sandworm compromised this Ukrainian accounting software called Medoc. And that was the kind of tool that they used to spread NotPetya out to you know thousands and thousands of networks around the world. What they did with their software supply chain attack was to seed out a destructive worm that did $10 billion worth of damage around the world, including to Russia itself. They were so reckless in their execution of this that they even took down the networks of massive Russian companies as well. I mean, they are truly you know, loose cannons by comparison. What's so kind of crazy making to me is that it took nine months for anybody to even say any, say that NotPetya was Russia, that not to mention that it was the worst cyber attack in history, that there needed to be consequences for this. And yet within like days, within maybe 24 hours probably of solar winds coming to light in December, we see members of Congress, we see you know the president-elect talking about how there has to be retaliation or a response to this act of espionage that was actually quite restrained and careful. So, you know, I feel like the pendulum has swung too far in the other direction. I, I was always the one trying to say, we need to respond to Russia. We need to hold them accountable. And now I, I'm the one saying, actually, you know, chill out, everybody. Like this was just espionage of the kind that we do. And we can't set a norm 
we can't try to draw a red line against espionage just because it's too effective, because it's too good. Yeah. I wonder to what extent the, you know, the threat escalation is a, a, its own form of political warfare, right? I mean, I've noticed since, particularly since 2014, really since 2016, when with the kind of operation to sway an American election, you see, you know, the intelligence community likes to leak stuff selectively, both with authority to do so from the top, and sometimes they just go rogue and do it to various mainstream newspapers, the New York Times being first among equals in that regard. And it's not because they're actually planning to do what they claim to be planning to do. It's that they want they want the threat of do, being able to do this out there. Because, you know, obviously the Russian government reads the New York Times as much as you or I do. You know, I mean, there was that, that other article a few years ago, I'm sure you remember it even in greater detail than I do, about, well, if the Russians try what they, they did in 2016, again in 2020, we can like black out Moscow. We'll just shut down the power grid, right? Like US Cyber Command, that's that's the level of escalation that they're thinking. And I mean, I read this and think, you know, I've, I've been sort of advocating tailored sanctions against not just Russian officials, but oligarchs for many years now. And every time I sort of raise this issue, I hear back from treasury or state people well, you know, we don't want to go after commercial retail banks in a serious manner because then, you know, some babushka in Novosibirsk is not going to be able to cash her pension, right? We want to draw a distinction between the regime and the people. And so the idea that the U.S. government is going to black out all of Moscow, you know, one of the world's major capitals, because there are trolls on Twitter or ads being bought on Facebook to try and push the election in Trump's way, just seemed to me so far-fetched. And here, another example where, you know, the Russians are doing something that they do all the time and that we do, as you pointed out, to other countries. And it's kind of sort of, if you talk about international norms, espionage is okay. You know, there is a, a sort of gentleman's agreement that we do this to not just our enemies sometimes, but to our own allies, as I mean, the NSA was doing in Germany, for instance. So I, yeah, I, I think I agree with you. The pendulum has swung a little too far in the other direction and it's like, you know, it's like Al Capone getting him for the tax evasion as opposed to all the other crimes, the serious crimes he committed prior to that point. You know, apart from this grand jury indictment for the NotPetya attack, what are you seeing? And, and obviously you're very well sourced and you report on this stuff all the time. What are you seeing from kind of the more sober headed minds in U.S. government in terms of trying to forestall another bona fide cyber attack that could compromise computer systems and shut down, I don't know, critical infrastructure? Well, I think that there actually was a pretty reasonable response to Sandworm eventually. It just took years, actually. I mean, it took, as I said, nine months from when NotPetya hit for there to be a real response from the U.S. government. First, there was a kind of name and shame. This was an act by the Russian military. Right. And, and this came in, in February of 2018. And then there were sanctions in response to NotPetya. You know, so that's, that's something. It just was kind of maybe too little, but definitely too late. It was not... The kind of immediate response that we heard about solar winds. Then there were EU sanctions as well. There's now been an indictment. We haven't actually seen another, no, not Petya 2.0 or anything like it. Actually, you know, before the any of those statements happened, there was a kind of aftershock of not Petya um, that hit a couple months later called Bad Rabbit, another worm. It hit mostly Russians, weirdly. And some people even have kind of hinted that it was potentially Sandworm kind of trying to just make it harder to attribute NotPetya, that they were trying to throw um, investigators off their the trail to, to make it look like this can't possibly have been Russian activity. Right. Then there was also the attack on the 2018 Winter Olympics, delaying this kind of response led directly to more attacks by Sandworm. But nonetheless, like there was a response and 
we haven't actually seen Sandworm do anything on that scale again, or anyone else for that matter. Yeah. I, I don't know. We may look back at the period that I tried to capture in my book where Sandworm was just running wild as this sort of total wild west of no red lines, everything is possible. And, you know, the GRU just every day just wakes up and tries to think of the most destructive hacking they can get away with and does it. And we don't see that now. So uh, like maybe Sandworm is still planning something terrible. But what I've actually seen from Sandworm since then has mostly been also acts of what appeared to be targeted espionage, perhaps, you know, reconnaissance for some sort of targeted disruption campaign, but nothing on the level of NotPetya, you know, not releasing worms in the same way. So no, I think I think something kind of worked, you know, possibly Sandworm has been restrained somewhat. Yeah, it's hard to kind of paint a picture for laymen. And I consider myself one. I mean, you know, I'm not a cybersecurity expert. So people, you know, have this, they hear these terms, malware, cyber espionage, cyber attack, they want to sort of make it concrete in their head. So for instance, walk us through how you, know, you have guys sitting in Moscow, who belong to a, a GRU cyber operations unit, they create a software, like a, a essentially malware in this, in the, not, the case of NotPetya was a patch, right? To be attached to the accountancy software that the Ukrainian firm was using. How did they first get into the Ukrainian system? You know, physically, how did they upload their, their malware into it? And then in terms of, you know, letting this thing run wild and, and become a kind of supply chain catastrophe. How does it work? Like the, the Ukrainian software somehow gets transported to other companies around the world and then those systems get infected and it, it, it operates like a virus. I mean, we're living in a, the age of a pandemic where we know how these things spread. But in, in the, at the level of, you know, sort of hacking, what does all this entail? Yeah, I'm trying to remember exactly what the initial vulnerability in this Ukrainian accounting software company's network was. It was actually, I mean, what I heard was that it was just kind of riddled with vulnerabilities that and this is like a kind of family run small business in a building on the outskirts of Kyiv. I, you know, met with the family. In fact, Alessia Linick is the founder of the company. And she just told me flat out, like, we never expected to be the target of a nation, you know, a state sponsored attack like this. So they, you know, they just didn't even really take cybersecurity seriously. They've kind of openly admitted but what that meant was that Sandworm broke in, and I forget exactly how, but I think that for years, in fact, the incident responders found there had been essentially like a foothold inside of the company's network from somebody, probably, and or maybe even another group too. You know, that happens sometimes. Yeah. Then Sandworm essentially broke into their update server and used that update server to push out updates to all of their customers around the world. The same way that, you know, MeDoc, you know, gets updates for new features and security patches or whatever bug fixes, they pushed out instead this, this worm. As you said, like it acted like a virus, but we call them, I guess we call them cybersecurity a worm for some reason. We don't talk about viruses anymore. I guess a virus used to be like what, when you had to click on an email or something, but this is totally automated. There is no user interaction within seconds. It's saturating hundreds or thousands of computers across your network. And the way it did that was with a kind of combination, like these intertwined hacking tools. One was a leaked NSA hacking tool called Eternal Blue, which is kind of notorious at this point. It had also been used in WannaCry. It was one of those hacking tools leaked by shadow brokers. More importantly than that tool was this other one called Mimikatz, which basically once it's on a computer can sort of peer into the computer's memory and pull out any passwords that were sort of sitting around there after they had been entered by the user. So 
with this kind of password scraping tool plus Eternal Blue in combination, you can jump from machine to machine in an automated way and just hit every computer in the network. In, in many cases, within seconds. I, you know, I talked to an IT administrator at Maersk, the world's largest shipping firm, who just literally described to me seeing a wave of black screens go across the room, just black, 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 as he watched one computer after another, just in a matter of, of moments, be corrupted by NotPetya. And then NotPetya essentially destroyed all the data on the machines, but made it look like it was a ransomware attack. You know, there was a ransom um, message saying, if you want your data back, pay this many Bitcoins to this address. But that was just a ruse. That was just an attempt to make this act of cyber war look like a cyber criminal for profit attack. So it's essentially like those four components in combination, the software supply chain attack, the two kind of lateral movement, we call them techniques, Eternal Blue and Mimikatz that allow the worm to spread within the network. And then this sort of payload is this destructive fake ransomware that destroys the computer or all of its data rather. So, and, and I mean, they're, they're co-opting Western or in this case, American worms that were created to allow NSA to have access to whatever systems they want. I mean, what's interesting to me about that too is if you look at sort of how the Russian military perpetrated the invasion and annexation of Crimea and all the kind of information warfare campaigns that attended that, the chief of the general staff, you know, wrote this now notorious white paper several years ago in which he says, look, let's just do what the Americans do based on, you know, observing at that point, I think it was 15 years of American counterterrorism from Afghanistan to Iraq, you know, this form of hybrid warfare that they've now sort of assimilated into their own military doctrine. So what I find fascinating about this is we have almost provided our enemies the tools with which they will now attack us. That's one. And two, when you talk about these vulnerabilities, I mean, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking of, okay, I, I get the spear phishing emails and I've been targeted by Fancy Bear and Cyber Burkut, which is the GRU, another GRU cutout. And usually you can kind of see it. Like someone sends you an email, it looks like it's from Google and it says, you you know, someone's attempted to penetrate your account, reset your password by clicking here. And then of course you go in and you enter your stuff and then now they've got your password. But what you're describing is I could be sitting at my computer, not even hitting a keystroke or doing anything that would unlock or allow into my system physically one of these guys. And it doesn't matter because an automatic software update has already just let the worm in, right? This is kind of terrifying to most people. Yeah, I, I mean, for Maersk, for instance, and I and I kind of did almost like a case study in the book of Maersk to try to just map out exactly what happened to them. They had one instance of this Medoc accounting software in their you know one office in Ukraine in Odessa on the Black Sea coast, and that was enough for them to you know have a single seed of Nantetia on their network that spread globally, that destroyed practically every computer in their headquarters, and then jumped out from there to take down 17 of their terminals and ports around the world with like, you know, tens of thousands of trucks, 18 wheelers lining up outside of these ports and shipping containers with tens of thousands of, of containers on them arriving at ports and nobody knows what's on them. You know, that kind of paralysis all started with you know zero interaction from Maersk, just the, they were just unlucky enough to have that one piece of accounting software in one of their offices. I guess I would correct, I guess, this idea that Russia is just doing what we do back to us. I mean, it's true that the NSA lost control of this cache of extremely powerful hacking tools that included that eternal blue component of NotPetya. 
But the NSA, as far as we know, never built a worm with that. They used it for very stealthy and targeted espionage, as far as we know. We'll never really know. But the NSA and even Cyber Command, who do more of the kind of aggressive, you know, offensive hacking stuff that sometimes has destructive or disruptive payloads at the end of it. We've never right. seen anything remotely like NotPetya from them. Even Stuxnet, which was, which did have self-spreading capabilities and did destroy physical equipment, which is, you know, this is the first to ever do that. Some critics of the U.S. government would say that opened Pandora's box, but it actually was extremely targeted by comparison. It was discovered because it spread too far, but it was just making some computers crash and reload accidentally when it spread too far. It wasn't destroying them. It wasn't like this carpet bombing of the global internet that not was. Right. If you had to guess, and I mean, this is the hardest part, right? Trying to understand the motivations or intentions of your, your enemy or adversary. You know, the GRU builds this thing, lets it loose in the wild. And it's, it's, it's like riding a tiger. I mean, you, you can't really control it. They don't seem to care. You talk about how Sandworm was just kind of running roughshod across global systems for years and until finally they were called out and, and then penalized. And now they've kind of gone quiet. Is this a case of just they're sort of doing this sort of form of war game, but actually it's it's almost a way of war itself. They want to see what they've built. They want to unleash Frankenstein's monster and see what it's capable of. But in order to do it, they're unleashing it against Western targets. And then even if it comes back, as you point out, to Russian Federation targets, well, you know, that's the price you pay. It's like detonating a, a nuclear weapon in Soviet airspace, right? We're going to do some damage to our own infrastructure, but that's just how we learn what kind of weapon we're, we're dealing with, right? What would you say is the reason they did this, if you had to guess? There are different theories about why NotPetya spread around the world the way that it did and even came back to Russia. Some people believe that because it, it initially was designed to exploit this Ukrainian accounting software, um, the GRU thought that they were that they had restricted their attack to Ukraine and that they were just going to destroy essentially the Ukrainian internet nationally. Of course, that's extremely short-sighted. You know, it's very obvious that multinationals are going to be using this same software in Ukraine and that it would, you know, hopscotch beyond Ukraine's borders to those companies wherever they are in the world, which is what happened. But some other people see this that as purposeful, that this was almost like a, a kind of cyber war trade embargo enforcement. Like if you do business in Ukraine, right. This will hit you. Maybe you should think twice about even having an office in Ukraine because this is essentially a cyber war zone. You don't want to even touch it. Pull out your investments. You know, um, Ukraine is a failed state. Just get out of here. Like that's another sort of interpretation of this. But the fact that it even spread back to Russia and did so much damage there. I think Russia, by some measures, was the worst hit country after Ukraine. Implies to me that this very well may have all been collateral damage. It's worth noting also that this accounting software keeps a kind of tax ID number for every network, for every user. So the hackers, Sandworm, could have easily, if they'd just been a little more careful, examined those tax ID numbers and really carefully restricted their their attack to only hit the companies they wanted to. Um, I mean, they, they had the perfect tool to do a very kind of mass, but well-constrained and targeted attack. And instead they just, you know, let this worm run wild. I, I guess I'm inclined to believe that at least some element of that was just recklessness and a kind of cowboy mentality. At the GRU, I'm, you know, I'm told by people who know the GRU better than me that you get a promotion not for being careful, but for being aggressive, for like being the one who just went out and did it that day. You know, that's like GRU mentality. 
Yeah. Well, John Cipher, former CIA officer, described it to me once as, you know, the GRU is like the guy who goes to the bar and solicits every single woman that he meets at the bar. And nine out of 10 times, he's getting slapped in the face and told, fuck off. But that 10th time, he's going home with somebody, right? So it doesn't matter how badly you embarrass yourself or how kind of crude and clumsy and heavy handed your methods. If you can just kind of have that operational success in terms of doing catastrophic damage to the adversary, you win. That's a success. I've been asking Western counterintelligence officials for years now, how do you rate the Skripal assassination attempt? The kind of consensus I've received and as reply is, well, it was a tactical failure, but a strategic victory, right? Because now if you're working for any of the Russian services and even thinking of defecting and going to work for MI6 or CIA or AIVD, you're not only going to think twice, you're going to think three, four, five times because hell, I mean, in the case of Skripal, he had already been in Russian custody, released as part of a spy swap. And then it was years later, they decide not only we're going to kill you, we're going to kill you with a military grade nerve agent <laughs> on European soil. And by the way, we don't even care about who else might expose to this nerve agent and die from it, right? It is a, a battering ram approach to prosecuting war. Whereas, I mean, you, you noted earlier, solar winds had a kill switch built in. So the SVR could say, even though we have access to this system, we don't really want it. We're going to get, we're going to leave, right? GRU doesn't do that. Yeah, totally. I mean, the GRU's history is just to simply like do the most uh, outlandish and reckless and aggressive thing that they can do in every situation, it seems like. And if they get caught, then so be it. You know, maybe that's part of the, you know, calculus, in fact, that they're sending a message, they're showing what's possible. In some ways, I think when they were doing these attacks just to Ukraine, they were experimenting, but they're also probably trying to signal to the West something about what they could do. Like if you if you try to turn out the lights in Moscow, then we're going to show you that we can cause blackouts in Ukraine. And we'll, we'll do that to Washington, D.C. if we have to. Right. The fact that they got caught for that was perhaps you know, part of the design. And that's something similar, maybe the case with a lot of this stuff, with Skripal, as you said, which was a GRU operation, maybe even other you know, of the kind of really appalling things that they have done, like the downing of MH17, their like a, attempt to spark a coup in Montenegro. I mean, they get caught again and again by often by like Bellingcat and this and their Russian partners, the insider. Yeah. And yet they just keep doing this stuff and they they do these kind of ham-handed attempts to cover up the campaign, but kind of like like the Skripal assassins going on TV and talking about how they just wanted to see the cathedral in Salisbury. Yeah, That's like the, the thinnest cover story in the world. Nobody believes it, but it kind of gives them just enough deniability that they can just keep doing it. Right. And in terms of how you catch cyber operators, I mean, I, I recall from your book, you know, everybody likes to leave, like graffiti artists like to leave their sort of signature or their tag. And hackers do the same thing. And it seems like state hackers also, there's an element of, of wanting to be exposed here, right? For exactly what you, you suggest is there's a menacing quality to having the other side call you out while you deny it, but almost with a wink and a nudge, like, yeah, we know you know it was us, but we're not going to we're not going to claim credit. Well, I don't think that Sandworm ever left a signature on purpose or like a graffiti tag, not after like their initial days when they had these Dune references in their code, right. which is why they were called Sandworm. Those went away very quickly. You know, it's very difficult and in any kind of hacking group or agency to rebuild all of its tools for every operation. So it's really more that like their techniques and their tools, their infrastructure, the servers they use, um, the victimology, all of it together, it's quite difficult to like 
just disappear as a group and then reappear in a totally new form with like totally new capabilities and looking and, and working in a wholly, wholly different way. So that's what allows people like John Hulquist and his team to re-identify Sandworm again when they reappear somewhere else, you know, name them as the group. Um, but, you know, Sandworm, I should say, just as with like kind of like, you know, Salisbury Cathedral cover story, they always had some at least thin ruse about who, you know, trying to pretend they were something else. With Napetia, I said they had fake, it was fake ransomware. In other cases, they pretended to be like a kind of hacktivist, anonymous type group. They pretended like another GRU, I guess sort of Fancy Bear and Sandworm work hand in hand. Fancy Bear has pretended to be Islamic extremists, right? a cyber jihadi group. And then Sandworm in 2018 with the Winter Olympics used this piece of malware called Olympic Destroyer that had not just one false flag, but an entire collection of them, all pointing to different government agencies, to North Korea and to China and to Russia, just to totally, you know, this confusion bomb um, dropped on malware analysts. And it took, as a result, like, you know, some really clever techniques to see through that. But nonetheless, like the detectives that I, you know, my sources who like examined that attack were able to see through it and, and find that it was, in fact, Russia framing North Korea. But it's not like they don't try. You know, they, in fact, are sometimes very innovative in the way that they try to deceive incident responders. And so, you know, one of the kind of sort of threads in my work on the GRU is there is this weird dichotomy or paradox between the absolute recklessness and, and crudity of selecting target packages, let's say, versus the methodology of creating the weapon and actually reaching the target can be quite sophisticated, right? Like the code that Sandworm uses is good code. These guys aren't morons. They're not troglodytic, even if they keep getting their hand caught in the cookie jar and everyone's like, well, that's you violate the cardinal rule of espionage, which is don't get caught. How would you rate the SVR's way of cyber intrusion uh, in terms of the, the quality of, of code? Because I know like people who study this stuff and know it really well, for them, code is a form of art, right? <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, I mean, this is how you judge who 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 the good the greatest hackers are is, is on the quality of their work. I mean, is the GRU better than SVR? Are they about equal or? I think that the, um, the GRU is most distinguished by their recklessness. And as you say, like they're kind of, their strategic mindset and their kind of like operating principles seem to be like totally cowboy idiocy, but they do have very sophisticated techniques. I mean, they use a software supply chain attack and like use zero day vulnerabilities. They remain the only hackers in the world who have ever caused a blackout as far as has ever been confirmed. Right. And they not once, but twice. And that's not easy. In the second case, they actually built this, you know, automated blackout malware called, um, you know, some people call it Crash Override or Indestroyer. Crash Override, is, a, is isn't that a reference to the movie Hackers? Yeah, but it's also like based on some crash.dll component of the malware. So, you know, this could speak directly to the circuit breakers inside of the U Ukrainian national utility and the, and they use this to turn off the power in the capital. I mean, that's the kind of the closest thing to Stuxnet we've ever seen from another another hacker group outside the US. So, you know, we really cannot, you should not underestimate the technical abilities of these hackers, but it's true. Nonetheless, I think that the SVR or whoever the solar winds hackers are, I keep hearing is that this was just very, very good espionage hacking. 
it's hard to compare with Sandworm. You know, I, I think in some ways it was better. Like they they did not get caught for more than a year right. until they just made the mistake of hacking FireEye, whose whole job is to do incident response, and catch people in these sorts of situations. So they definitely, that was a huge intelligence coup that they were able to remain undetected for that long in that many agencies. And um, I think that that is part of why there's this uh, sense that we have to retaliate against that, or, you know, this kind of White House message that there will be retaliation for it. Although I, you know, I think it, it's almost counterproductive to do so when this was the opposite end of the spectrum from Sandworm. Right. You know, the thing that, that worries me the most, having read your book and delved into some of this is, I don't see a, a sort of mutual assured destruction doctrine at play here, you know, that, like we saw in the, in the 20th century, when in terms of nuclear exchanges or any kind of escalation with uh, ballistic missiles and so on. It terrifies me having watched the HBO miniseries on Chernobyl and seen how human error led to this horrible disaster. It terrifies me to know that there are people out there with computers who can create something that could physically shut down or manipulate the system of, say, a nuclear power plant and cause a kind of Chernobyl disaster, not by human error, but by human intention, right? And you could essentially have the effect of a nuclear war, or at least in, in situ, without launching any missiles or without any kind of, you know, state signature on it. And this seems to be, I mean, without being too alarmist, but this seems to be very much, you know, the potentiality that we're all facing here in an age of, of cyber warfare. People sitting in basements half a world away can wreak the kind of havoc that was almost unheard of until right after World War II, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure I would compare it to nuclear war in its effects or really in its sort of like deterrent model because you can't threaten counter-strike that will prevent someone from doing this. They, it seems like states always believe that they will get away with it this time. They won't get caught. They'll have a false flag or something and that will embolden them to try. I guess the other uh, thing is that it sort of stays beneath the level of recognized acts of war in many cases. It takes it takes like months of analysis and discussion to decide whether these things are acts of war. We're still having that debate about NotPetya, which I think was extremely clearly an act of cyber war. Right. But NotPetya didn't kill anyone directly either. You know, NotPetya had these second and third order effects that, you know, spread to a speech to text transcription software company that was used in hospitals across the US, the hospitals across the United States didn't know that the software that they used to read changes into their medical records was down. So all of these changes, millions of changes were lost to patients' medical records, which very well may have endangered or even ended someone's life for all we know. But it's very difficult to trace those consequences. I mean, I, I remember your reporting on that in the book, you know, that, that these patient databases were, were down. And, you know, in some cases you had patients who were in quite bad condition. I mean, that to me only makes the menacing quality of all this greater is that there are indirect casualties where you can never really draw a straight line back to Moscow or back to an intelligence agency because they're knock-on effects, right? I mean, we're in the midst still of a pandemic. And according to the Wall Street Journal, which relied on an analysis done by the uh, State Department's GEC, every single Russian intelligence service, the FSB, the SVR, and the GRU, have their own kind of disinformation campaign with respect to the Western manufactured COVID vaccines, right? This is designed to do a few things. First and foremost, make their the Russian government's own Sputnik vaccine 
the top of the market product, right? And to degrade and to defame all the competitors so that they can increase their exports to European countries in particular. But it's also, there's a gratuitous cruelty to it because you have Western audiences who might not directly through reading Russian state media, but indirectly because of whatever alt media outlets they choose to consume information from are getting second and third degree Russian disinformation about something that could save their life. Now, to take this to a cyber warfare level, what if the GRU decided tomorrow, you know what, let's shut down the supply chain for AstraZeneca or for Johnson & Johnson or whatever. Let's disrupt the rollout of these vaccines for American potential COVID sufferers. That would lead to death, certainly to sickness and certainly to the exacerbation of a global pandemic. And that's well within their purview to do if they wanted to, right? You know, it would be a an unprecedented and absolutely like nutty thing for them to do. They would face a kind of retaliation, I think, at this point that would make it extremely unwise for them to do so. They do get caught in the end. They, I think at this point, know that they will eventually be caught, I hope. Right. But yeah, I mean, I think in some ways, well, just to look back at NotPetya again, NotPetya hit Merck as well. Merck was totally devastated by this. They may actually have lost more money than anyone. They are now fighting with their insurer over whether this was an act of war and claiming that it cost them $1.3 billion. Their insurer is saying, we don't cover acts of war. You know, Merck is in the position of, of having to argue that NotPetya was not an act of war to try to get reimbursed all of that money. But Merck had its uh, manufacturing of ph- pharmaceuticals shut down. They had to borrow their own HPV vaccine from the Center for Disease Control. If that happened now, if that happened to multiple pharmaceutical companies, absolutely, it could have a devastating effect. I think in some ways, NotPetya is scary because it shows, I don't think that any GRU hackers probably woke up and thought, I think today we'll shut down Maersk or try to impede their vaccine rollout or something. But that was an accidental effect and it was an enormous one. So that could always happen again. And then maybe Russia it may just as easily be North Korea who do you know equally massive acts of cyber disruption, just as reckless or more so in many cases. I think that um, that in some ways is the, the thing that, you know, the kind of scary story from my book that still should keep people up at night. Yeah. Well, Andy, I mean, it's been great to have you on uh, to paint this sort of dark picture for us. Um, and uh, I look forward to reading your next book. Uh, can you want to tease what that's going to be about? I don't think I'm ready to, unfortunately. Sorry. But it's also nothing to do with um, with any of this cyber war stuff. It's a total, it's like a, a very different direction. Sorry to be cryptic. No, that's fine. But we'll have you back on when when that book comes out. Um, it's been great to uh, to get your overview of these things, and you know, I knew you would be able to shed more light on this than almost anybody else. So, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Michael. I, I appreciate your attention to these distinctions, which are so important. For me, delving into my own book was really an education because a lot of the things that I had just through the popular consciousness of the Cold War assumed were carried out by the KGB, in fact, were carried out by the GRU. And there's a case to be made that they were, in some ways, the more decisive Russian intelligence service throughout the Cold War in determining the outcome of that war. Well, definitely think there need to be more books about the GRU, and I will definitely be reading yours. All right. Take care. 